You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Hoof Care Essentials Foundation partner, Meda Supply Corporation. I've come back to Queensland, to Brisbane from New Zealand, and as promised, I've caught up with Professor Chris Pollitt again, and so we're going to do part two to our podcast, and I've got a number of technical questions I would like to ask you, Chris, so I hope you're ready for that. Sure. All right. Uh, Let's see, where did we get to? Uh, I think the one that's a pretty obvious one is... What would your advice be to somebody who suspects their horse is having a laminitic episode, an acute episode? Okay, okay. So, what have we got, a pony or a horse? Let's say we've got a pony that's leaning back on the heels of its mm-hmm. feet, mm. unwilling so, to walk. So, it's a biggish pony. It's a sort of riding pony. Yeah. And it's I've never had this before. Okay, we'll say it's never had it before. And it's uh, now mature, it's seven or eight years old. Yes. And it's uh, been in this paddock or field that's uh, had a flush of rain. And up to this point, the pasture has been pretty dry and dead. I hear it's been a drought in England. But well, it rained. You know, two weeks without rain. We always ran the test off. Anyway, yeah. And that was London. So now a fortnight ago it rained, so we've got a flush of pasture coming up, and suddenly this pony, uh, which is in good condition and loves to eat, unrestricted access to pasture, no competition from any other horses, and lo and behold, it's crippled. It's very, very painful. So what are we going to do? I want to see x-rays. If I'm not the first call veterinarian and it's another veterinarian or owner that's calling me I want this pony to have uh, strict rest it needs to be taken into a stable with very soft bedding and then I want to see radiographs quick soon as soon as possible I want a thorough clinical examination of the animal to make sure it doesn't have any underlying pneumonia or metritis or any other gut disease. So we'll assume that it's just foot sore. And they get it into the stable. And then, so we look at the radiographs and uh, it has to be on some pain relief. And so phenylbutazone is the obvious choice. Uh, I don't want any local anaesthetic applied to the nerves of the distal limb. I don't want the horse to be forced to walk in any way. I want it to rest. And then I see the radiographs and we now have significant separation of the distal phalanx from the outer hoof wall. So the outer hoof wall has been levered away from the bone. There's no rotation of the phalangeal axis, but the hoof is definitely not aligned parallel to the dorsal uh, border, the parietal border of the distal phalanx, but it's still in pain, so we've seen the x-rays. So the diet now has to be almost no carbohydrate. So we can soak any hay that's going to be fed, there's no access to that pasture. 
the food will have to be some non-carbohydrate uh, uh, sourced or source of nutrition like soybean meal, any of the bean meals, any of the cottonseed meals. Uh, and grass hay, if it has been soaked for at least six hours and the tea, the liquid from that soaking thrown away, not even the dogs are allowed to eat, drink it because they will get diarrhea if they do. So full of fructan and long-chain polycarbohydrates. So I do now want to know whether this pony is insulin dysregulated. So I will demand a, at least a blood insulin sample anytime, and preferably the oral sugar test. So no food for the previous six hours or so, and then a small dose of a sugar-laden meal. And uh, a blood is taken before that meal is given, and then a, another blood is taken three, four hours later. And we know from good research, mainly done here in Australia and Queensland, that if that uh, insulin peak is higher than 250 international units per mil and stays high, we're dealing with insulin dysregulation. So the carbohydrate peak in that pasture has day by day pushed the horse's insulin up to a point where it's triggered insulin dysregulated laminitis, a form of laminitis where the secondary epidermal lamellae uh, stretch and distort and allow the distal phalanx down. It's not an all-out catastrophe like the uh, septicemia cases are, you know, the colitis cases and the retained placenta cases. Yeah. The insulin dysregulated ones, properly managed, and this is the first time this pony has had this, remember. If we can get this uh, insulin down to normal, I think we will be surprised that this pony will make a very good recovery. And it's uncanny, Simon, that the repeat radiographs in a few months' time will be near normal, which you don't get if you have had the catastrophic septic type of laminitis. So returning the insulin to normal seems to give the chance of the lamellae to reorganise themselves. The key thing is that the basement membrane doesn't separate from the, from the uh, suspensory apparatus. The cells certainly relax and stretch separate from each other, but generally the basement membrane stays attached. So things, um, uh, a common term is that the lamellae knit back together. Well, I haven't heard that, but is that what happens? Mm -hmm. Well, knitting, I don't know what that really means, but yeah. they certainly draw the bone back into a relatively normal position. Nobody's ever done any studies on how this recovery occurs, and what the lamellae look like. You know, we, the research we've done with insulin shows a, a severe degradation of the lamella structure. The architecture is shattered, but uh, nobody's looked at that a month later because we've always euthanized those cases. And if we do are doing research on ponies that we recover and rehome, of course, we don't get to see those lamella either. Okay, well, we've gone on to the, the suspensory apparatus uh, to some extent. But first of all, I would like to ask you, does the lamellae 
nourish what we would term, and I know you're going to correct me on this, uh, the insensitive lamellae. Well, what, do you tell me what the insulin lamellae are, Simon. No, the insensitive lamellae. I was always taught that it's the, uh, is, is the horny interdigitation, mm. so that they're locked. And actually, I don't even like thinking of fingers when I think it's more like pleats, isn't it? Absolutely, it's, it's curtains, like two, yeah. Yes. Is, is a better description. But that the one side is innovative and alive, and the other side isn't. Well, I go around the world now, Simon, saying cast that word from your mind. Never repeat it again in my presence. Insensitive lamellae. Well, because, because... I have Simon, to ask these questions. I heard oh, you say that two it's weeks a, ago. I'm glad you did. It's a yeah. great question. You're probably setting me up, I know. Mm -hmm. The so-called insensitive lamellae, the epidermal, horny lamellae, are the most sensitive cells in the system. And it's their sensitivity to these insults, to insulin, for instance, that causes the whole chain reaction. So they're extremely sensitive. But they are being nourished, are they? From the of course, yeah. yeah. The blood supply, uh, they have no blood supply of their own, and all of their nutrients come from the capillaries, blood supply, the capillary part of the blood supply, arteries deliver the blood, no exchange of nutrients, nourishment from arteries, only from the capillaries. And the capillaries are right next door in the anatomic structure. They're in the secondary dermal lamellae, just a few microns away from the epidermal basal cells, the so-called insensitive cells, mm -hmm. and they're getting constant flow of glucose and other nutrients diffusing out of the capillaries straight into the cells where they metabolize that uh, glucose, utilize it for as energy to maintain their hold on each other and their hold on the basement membrane. And if they let go of that hold, we get laminitis. Okay, I'd like to know why most of the world says lamini and you say mm. lamelli. I do. Well, I, I, I have for 10 years after listening to you, so. <laughs> but I, I, I just need an explanation as to why. Well, we know what a laminate is. Plywood is laminate sheets. And layers, yeah. Layered down on top of each other. And lamellia are leaves. Underneath a mushroom or a toadstool, you have lamellae. It's a nice little analogy. I mean, they radiate out from the centre, but they are leaves. They are true lamellae. And uh, there is a Bible of veterinary nomenclature. Yeah. And if you refer to that, there is no lamellae. Anatomica nomine, nomina veterinaria. Sure. Yes. And actually, I'm forever telling farriers this. They can download that for free, which is oh. rather nice. Yeah. And there's even an illustrated version. Oh, is there? Mm. And well, uh, so I stick to that. They're, they are lamellae. Okay, well that explains that. Mm. Now, but it gets complicated because we, we, I'm happy to say laminitis. And I can't even pronounce lamellitis. No? Oh, I'll never be using that term. But even laminitis now doesn't really fit as a description of what is actually going on. You remember my lecture down at the coast, uh, I said it's really a dysregulation. It's a 
failure of the attachment apparatus. Yeah. Okay, let's get on to more of that. So the hoof wall has this extraordinary and complex structure suspending this quite heavy animal Mm. in a relatively small area. And there are people, believe it or not, in this world that, that, that think that the hoof wall is not there to support the horse. Mm-hmm. Have you, you've probably noticed that, or heard <laughs> that. How, how do we convince them that this structure is, is well designed to take most of the weight of the horse? I don't know, Simon. I mean, uh, there are people who are classified as unconvincibles, and it's a waste of our breath is it? to well, try I, to change their mind. I, you see... Perhaps I don't meet those people so much, but I did meet one recently in New Zealand and I was stunned by the illogical explanation, Mm. uh, you know, how this was all right to remove uh, the loading from the hoof wall and and put it onto the sole. Yeah, I see it in laminitis therapy as well. You hear of people unloading the lump, the lamellae or the laminae by... um, putting the load onto the sole. Yeah. I don't see the logic of that. There's plenty of people successfully treat chronic laminitis without ever doing that. Yeah. I mean, I, I once had an apprentice who, who burnt the shoe on. He was a good apprentice, but he burnt the shoe on across the sole, didn't ease the sole. I had a phone call 12 hours later, and I thought I could see it. This had induced laminitis. Or that's what it appeared by... Exactly, what it appeared to be. A very sore-footed horse. And they walk as if they have laminitis. Yeah. I doubt whether it did have laminitis. Yeah. It would have had a very sore sole. It was. It, it took five minutes' work to make it a lot more comfortable. Yeah. So it's always worth reminding all of us that um, you know, bolting a shoe across the sole, is, even partially, mm. is not a good idea. I lecture to trimmers... And I lecture because I want to impart true anatomy. What it's a bit like Darwin announcing or describing natural selection for the first time. It was greeted with shock and disbelief that anything like that could be possible. But the thinkers of the world saw it as a revelation something that is right in front of their eyes, so obvious, that didn't need proof. And I see the wonderful anatomy of the horse's foot as something, once you reveal it and explain it and see how it's constructed, is uh, magnificent. And yeah. you, don't, you should not interfere with the way it operates. I think uh, Bragula and Hirschberg in Berlin described it as a miracle of bioengineering. I use that term. Yeah, well, maybe they copied it off you. I'm not <laughs> going to get... I don't want to get into this. <laughs> but certainly, um, I, I read it in one of their papers. Mm. Mm. Now, you have you have two books that I know of on the horse's foot, The Colour Atlas of the Foot and The Illustrated Horse's mm. Foot. Is the second one, is that a second edition of the first? Is it a progression? Not really. I book? mean, the first one... Uh, I was invited to produce because I had a, an enormous collection of colour slides and a colleague in the veterinary school had just done a colour atlas of skin diseases of dogs and he said, you know, it's a breeze, you just describe each colour 
colour slide and they submit it and out comes a book. And I was surprised how popular that book was. I mean, it, it took a couple of years' work and research to properly describe each slide. And I think what I enjoyed about the book was that I was able to present case histories. So I could show a horse on day one and then months or years later how it had progressed or not. The second book is a deep uh, investigation, sort of the final uh, autobiography, if you like, of my consuming interest in the anatomy of the horse's foot. So I've gone into enormous detail with the histology. So it's everything I know about the horse's foot, the anatomy, the bones, epidermis, everything, using all of the technology, the photography, the, the bandsaw to cut sections, describing each one. Uh, we've used uh, magnetic resonance imaging, CT scans of the bones, reconstructed parts of the anatomy, histology, electron microscopy. I want to mention here that Simon Collins was in at the beginning of this book too, and he contributed significantly, particularly in the development and the production of the 3D models that came from the CT and the MRI. So thank you, Simon. So where do, because obviously I had a very early copy uh, there's not many books come out about the horse's foot or hoof, so I think anybody who's keen on it should own all those books. Illustrated horse's foot. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, which? Um, so, who's the publisher? It's with? Elsevier. Okay. So people, but yeah. in this day and age, people can Google it, oh, yeah. get it on Amazon. Amazon. Uh, yeah. The book depository. Yeah. And uh, any of those bookshops. Yeah, it's there. Good. Well, they should, uh, you they know, should and the it. people who have really read it, uh, they congratulate me deeply and sincerely about it. It's a very deep book. Uh, you can flick through it superficially and just read the case histories. The back third of the book is case histories, and they're pretty interesting. Mm. No, so well, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pleased with it, but it sold very few. We, we don't say that on a public podcast, Chris, but that's very honest of you. But it, it's, it's crazy that I can only assume people haven't heard about it. So they, yeah. you know... Uh, Maybe it's a bad title. Maybe it sounds like a, um, a comic book or something. I, I don't know. But um, anyway, I'd encourage everybody to buy it. Yeah. All right. I never got round to, in the first podcast, I usually ask a deep philosophical question. Uh-huh. And that's quite simple. It's uh, what's the most important thing that you've learned in your life? (laughs) Well, I'm coming up to 77, Simon, so there might be quite a few important things, but you want the most important thing. If you have it. I think it is to remain cheerful in all weathers. (laughs) By that I mean try to be optimistic, try to be resilient and you'll have your ups and downs in life but uh, sleep on it next day won't be so bad and you can come back from setbacks in the research we've had lots of setbacks you know we don't advertise the failures well I've pursued some things in laminitis research that have been absolute duds but we've had some success and the, the most important successful thing in laminitis is 
the distal limb cooling, just how potent and effective that is. So we do have a genuine... Oh, by the way, that pony probably should have got cold therapy too if we were right onto it in the first few hours of its life. I should have mentioned that. Uh, it's been very important in my life to have a partner that I can rely on, and my wife Sandy is just a wonderful, wonderful companion and always has been. Supports me when I'm down and likewise when she's been down and uh, we're forging ahead and we look forward to adventures every year. We plan adventures. So, you know, life can be, you can study and you can um, work hard in your career, but you've still got to go back to your family and enjoy your kids growing up, enjoy, support your wife in her career, etc. So life's been great. Um, I have no regrets whatsoever. That never answered your question, but I've no, spoken no, for it, five it, minutes. It, it, that's all right. Everybody answers it differently. I mm. ask the same question. I'm going to have to change it at some point because my victims are going to be prepared, and I don't like them to be pre prepared for that one. Now, I have to can, ask... Can I just... Yeah. You know, when you ask a question like that, it's, it puts you on the spot because yeah. you don't want to de-emphasise some of the very important things that have already happened to you. But I want to tell you the story of, of a particular postgraduate student that I had working with me. And he was a devout Muslim. He was from Jordan. His name was Musa Devratka. He might even get to listen to this one day. And Musa, as I said, was a devout Muslim. But we, he loved horses. You know, he was a claimed Bedouin Arab descent. And uh, he thought horses were the most magnificent animals in creation. Not dogs. Didn't like dogs. But he... Uh, loved horses and he was appalled that when I told him that I didn't believe in God he was just shocked and his breath was taken away when I told him that and he dwelt on it for months and one day we were looking down the microscope and we saw something in the deep anatomy of the foot that uh, nobody had ever seen before and I said to Musa, I said, Musa, look at this. You realize that those cells and those, the way they're shaped and the way they've changed with laminitis and the way that basement membrane, you've stained this basement membrane to show how it's separated and being digested by the enzymes in that region. I said, you know what you're looking at? I said, you're looking at God's work. And he said, Chris, Chris, you do believe in God. <laughs> wow. And he was overjoyed that I made that statement. Well, that, that's good. And um, I'm not going to tell you my what my director of studies told me about God and being a scientist, but you probably could guess. Um, now, you said to me, because it, it's been really good of you to rush into the city to catch up with me on my penultimate day here in Australia. And uh, it, But you said to me, uh, you're busy because you're preparing for Brumby Week. Mm. Can you just... Tell us what Brumby Week is. Well, you met Brian Hampson. Yeah. Is he one of your podcasts? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so you'll hear from Brian. And Brian and I set out to study the feet of feral horses. And we've come to the conclusion, he probably told you this, that the foot is a product of the environment. So we had to find different environments. We finished up with seven. One of them was the Kaimanawa Mountains of New Zealand, and then the Gulf Country, Channel Country, 
uh, central Queensland, and one of the other ones was in the central Australian desert. And uh, we keep going back to that place. It's so magical. We love the environment, love the people. So over the 10 years since we did that research, we've uh, formed a relationship with the uh, people at Kings Creek Station. And three or four years ago, I said to the owner, Ian Conway, I said, you know what we should do? I said, on the coast, they have a bird week and people from all over the world come to bird watch in, uh, in Queensland at the Lamington National Park. Mm -hmm. We should have a Brumby week and invite people to come up from all over. We'll show them the horses. Brian will break them in and uh, it'll be a festival of the Brumby for five days. And that's what it's all about. The people come to live. I've got satellite tracking collars on four bands of horses, on one of the mares in each band. You know, in each band is a, it's a tight unit, one or two stallions involved and five or six mares, and they stay married to each other. There's no swapping over. The band members are a stable, stable group. And... Uh, I've uh, got the collars on one of the stable mares, so I can find them at any time. Uh, I've got radio emitters on a couple of them, so I can either use a radio tracking device and walk up to them. And over the years, they've become pretty accustomed to our presence, so we can, I like to call it walking with Brumbies. I can take city people and uh, walk them and see the newborn foals, the foals will be dropping around about now and uh, watch the behaviour of the stallions and the mares and the peck order of the band, etc. It's great fun. Yes, it's, it really seems very enticing to me. I'd have to say, so I now I know what Brumby Week is, mm. and I can promise you, Chris, that I'm such an appalling rider. It's probably not going to be me, but I bet my Australian daughter would do that. She'd be most welcome. If she wanted to ride them, that's another story. <laughs> well, she's daft enough to try that. But anyway, mm. we'll see about that. Uh, Brian has another program where he does take people to break in Brumbies and they can ride them if they break them in properly. But that's not Brumby Week. We don't do that at Brumby Week. Okay. He breaks them in and rides them. All right. Chris, uh, as always, it's been wonderful speaking to you. Thank you for keeping your promise and coming back and mm. finding me. Uh, two and a half weeks after the conference so we've got plenty of material we'll put it out for everybody to listen to thank you very much you're most welcome thank you pleasure we'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode you can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.